Tonight I want to talk about impermanence. The Buddha talks about three, well, three doorways to the deathless, really. The understanding, the cellular, the really living insight understanding of impermanence and or of dukkha and or of anatta or the truth of non-self. Those are kind of like different doorways in to the real opening of heart and mind in a moment to seeing and understanding life, ourselves, mind and body the way it is. Recognizing, seeing things the way it is, even in a moment. It releases the heart and mind from clinging, if only for a moment. It's a good moment. (laughs) Releases the heart and mind from clinging, from confusion, from all these endless stories of me, me, me. It's a huge relief. So how's the sound right now? It's okay? It's a little low because, I yeah, I'm talking low. Okay, how's the sound now? It's always dangerous asking a group of people as if we're going to get an agreement. <clears throat> okay, that's how it is. We're all just going to have to live with it for this Next hour. So remember I said, I, I read this quotation from the Buddha a couple of weeks ago, where he said, Bhikkhus, when the perception of impermanence is developed and cultivated, it eliminates all sensual lust, it eliminates all lust for existence, it eliminates all ignorance, it uproots all conceit I am. As I told you, that basically means complete liberation of heart and mind, those four phrases together. It's powerful. The perception of impermanence developed and cultivated. And to me, it's a mystery and it's not a mystery, but one of the mysteries of a practice is if this is how it is, we should say this is how it is, pretty much everything, more than pretty much, things are impermanent. Why isn't that our perception? And how can we develop and cultivate that perception? So it's really quite, it's interesting to me to explore, to keep reminding myself. And so I'm just, I'll say a few things tonight, no way, cover the field. But it is difficult to truly, the way I think of it, cellularly know, to live, to act from that knowing that all phenomena are in constant shift and change. What would it be like? These are questions I would ask myself sometimes, these couple of questions. One is, do I truly believe, live from, accept that truth? Not, oh yeah, that's right, everything's impermanent. You know, just conceptual knowledge, it's useful but not enough. I really mean live from that truth. And what would be the effect of living? really responding, just knowing that that's how things are. How would it affect our responses, our actions, our decisions, how we meet the moments of our life? Do we even, and this is now a conceptual level, do we even believe it? Do we believe what the Buddha says quite often? In a lot of his uh, talks, in his suttas, he often, in the way he describes like the proof of anatta, of no self. He'll go through, you know, the sense 
sense doors or he'll go through the five khandas or whatever, and he'll say, you see how they're impermanent? And anything that is impermanent is inherently unsatisfying. Anything impermanent cannot be held to as me or mine. He says that often as a definitive proof. And so I find it worth just exploring myself. Do I actually believe that? Do we believe, even if we know things are impermanent, do we believe that that makes it inherently unsatisfying? Doesn't mean not pleasurable. Sure, pleasurable in a moment, but inherently unsatisfying, nothing we can hold to for any reliability, any lasting satisfaction. It's really radical. Radical. Do we live from that? And yet it's in our face, in our perception, constantly. This is the Buddha again. O bhikkhus, there is no form, no feeling tone or vedana, no perception, no volitional formations, which is all the thoughts, the moods, the formations of mind, the motivations, and no consciousness. Those are the five khandhas that make up a person. There's no moment of that that is permanent, stable, eternal, that is not subject to change, that will remain the same, like eternity itself. And then the Blessed One took up like a little bit of dirt under his fingernail. And he said to that bhikkhu, there's not even this much form, the little bit of dirt under his fingernail, not even this much form that is stable, that is not subject to change, that's eternal. And he went on through all the five khandhas, not even this much that's not subject to change. And he said, if there were this much form consciousness or anything that was subject to, that was not subject to change that was permanent then the li- this living of the holy life for the complete destruction of dukkha of suffering could not be discerned but because there is not even this much form etc that's permanent then it is possible this living of the holy life for the complete destruction of suffering of dukkha Not even this much. Is that how we live? Is that how we respond, relate to life? Do we really have that cellularly in our knowing? I mean, for me, there's moments, rare moments when I actually know that. But there's a lot of moments when that's not the perception. So I just want to talk a little bit about three different ways I see that we don't, it doesn't get in. And I'm sure you can see or experience more different ways for yourself. So hopefully this is just sparking your own investigation. Not thinking about, but investigation. So one is, of course, what I talked about a couple weeks, the basic misperception. We recognize, we see things as being permanent. We just don't even see the changing nature. See could be hear, smell, taste, but we don't perceive the changing nature. Another way is just simply inattention, which contributes to the misperception. We're just like zoning out. Oh, yeah, this has always been here. It's always will be here. We don't even know what is here, but we just think something's always been here, never going to change. And another one, I think, is a kind kind of first noble truth, our instinctive or kind of habitual resistance, fear, or pulling back from... Um, sadness, unpleasant, 
the, the sense of loss, the sense of, of sadness that comes often in our normal lives. We unliberated, not completely enlightened human beings, when we are face-to-face, often, not always, sometimes change is beautiful, but often when we're in, confronted with change, that touches this place of loss, of sadness, of fear. And, you know, we have the, that's the whole, you know, second noble truth. We shrink back from that no. We just don't quite let it in, as if, as if it's a problem, as if sadness is a problem, instead of just being part of life. No, but it feels wrong. Things shouldn't be changing. And even in really in really big ways in our whole culture, there's ways it's kind of, you know, enshrined that we don't really include the great changes in the common culture, you know, how old people are put away, sick people are put away in little enclaves, you know, death. We don't see it so much unless we choose to work in hospice or hospital or with that. It's not so much part. A couple of years ago, when I was um, helping to teach a, a retreat in Upper Burma in near Sagaim, which is a beautiful spot on the banks of the Irrawaddy River, just tons of, of nunneries and monasteries. And so one day after lunch, um, the, other, the other Western teachers and translators and friends, we were going for a walk along the river, about five of us. And... We just got five minutes down the road, and, and uh, along there's a, like a stone wall looking down over the river, quite big, broad river. And there was about 50, 60 people, the nuns from the two nunneries nearby, and we knew some of them, and all the other kind of villagers. So we stopped, and with us was uh, the translator who could speak fluent Burmese, and we stopped and talked to some of the nuns that we know. Mostly older, but there's also, it was like the... Inyeti, she's like the cutest little nun in the world. She was six at that time, and we'd known her since she was four. I mean, she's so cute in her little pink robes. So, um, so she came running over and was talking to us. And it turned out what had happened, what everyone was waiting for, is three young novice monks, like 11, 12, 13, very common for, for young boys to become monks for a while, and they stay in the, in the monasteries. They get their schooling that way. And so three of them had been out playing on the river. And one of them, who it turns out had just come from a far province a week ago and wasn't used to being near the river, one of them had gone under and he hadn't come up. And they were looking for him. Well, it had been an hour. So he pretty much knew. So they were looking for him and everyone was gathering around. And as we waited for a while... They, they found his body, pulled it up in a boat, carried it. Um, just, they were just right on the road, and then right on the other side of the road was a big kind of sala, an open, an open platform that, that was covered, that was part of the, the nunnery that was right there. So they carried him over very respectfully, put him on a bed that was on that platform, did everything they could to try and revive him. Of course, couldn't. It had been an hour. And then... Seeing that he was dead, they ran, some of the monks ran and got fresh robes. They made them all nice. Now, mind you, the whole village, all the nuns and the monks and the lay people were all there and part of this. This was carried out really right in the middle of everything. 
And so everyone was there. This little six-year-old nun also, she, she was telling us she sort of knew him. He was a little bit of a relative, and everybody knows everybody there. It's very kind of small. People know what's going on. And so they were really sad, really sad. But everyone was there dealing with it. They, they kind of sent someone off to his parents, which was going to take 24 hours to get to them. And in the meantime, they kind of made shifts to sit there and chant and be with his body until his parents came for the 24 hours. And they were sad. People were upset. Little Inyechi, she was upset. But it wasn't that the adult nuns were saying, oh, no, no, you shouldn't see this. This isn't something for a child to see. Like, she knew everything that was going on. The sadness was there, the care, the including his death as part of life. The young monks he'd been playing with, of course, they'd run off. They were scared they'd get in trouble. So also the nuns and monks were worried about them. They went to find them, make sure they were okay, include them. They included us, you know, brought us up to... And it was just this sense that was really beautiful in a way, uh, that this is a very touching part of life. The whole village, everyone there shared it. And it's just, yeah, it's just as sad as it would be for us, but it's, it's not weird or something to hide or something to shut off. And I thought how, you know, here, if someone came up after an hour when it was clear they were dead, not when maybe, you know, they could be clear they were dead, still we'd have to call 911, the sirens, the flashing, the heart things, you know, the throwing, and, and the whole sense of, of community and this being a part of life and it wouldn't be there. And it really affected, of course, it affected us all deeply. And as we're leaving, one of our friends, she said to me, a good friend of mine, she said, you know, I'm 47 years old, American. I'm 47 years old. I have never seen a dead person before. Just living a normal life in Silicon Valley. I don't know, that really, it just touched me in this way of how kind of split off the major changes, the major, and this is the big one, of course, birth and death. If we don't even, I say don't even open to that, but that's even kind of hidden. Never mind the fact that every single moment of our life is a constant transition. But we're just not kind of, you know, put in the modality to notice that. We more have our, our habit our attention trained to look for stability, to look for familiarity, to look for comfort, you know, and it's, it's more upsetting when it changes. You know, when I or someone I know or even my elderly mother suddenly gets a disease or sick, does my mind go, oh, the conditions for a healthy body have changed. Now there's sickness. And that's not the first reaction that comes up in my mind, you know? Even with my elderly muscle, oh, no, and then maybe I can get there and maybe I can't. But it's just kind of like a taking for granted when things are going along in a relatively okay way. Of course, that's how it's supposed to be. And when a difficulty or a change comes, something's gone wrong. So part of... Part of, so that's part of not letting in the perception that I see, just it's kind of threatening, scary, uncomfortable, kept out 
not really consciously. Another thing we don't notice, and this is something I, I, I really got clearly one time when I was at a teaching that His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, gave. Um, and he was talking about how we, we assume permanence and we don't notice the momentariness of change. So where we say, yeah, we really know things change and we can see something starts my life and it goes on for a while and then it ends. Or something starts, the day starts and it goes on for a while and then it ends. Or the sitting starts and it goes on for a while and then it ends, you know, whatever. So there's no like starting, there's no like this persistence, starting a period of persistence, staying the same and change. There's no persistence for more than an instant. It's constantly arising and changing, arising and changing, arising and changing. And so we don't tend to really recognize that, you know? And it's true, it's happening so quickly that often we we can't literally perceive it. But then on top of that not perceiving, we also don't look carefully enough. And that's what a lot of our formal meditation practice supports us in doing looking more carefully. And then on top of the not recognizing, there's just an assumption. Oh, yeah, the sitting. But I know when people come into interviews and we say, well, what happened in your sitting? Then it's funny because people say, what, do you mean, what happened in my sitting? It was an hour. So much stuff happened. How can I say what happened in the sitting? And that's right. You know, it's a ridiculous question, what happened in your sitting. You know, it would take an hour to describe what happened in the sitting because every instant is different. So just in the way we communicate, we make kind of big, you know, sweeping assumptions. Which, I mean, it's okay to be able to communicate. It's okay that I more or less look the same as I did yesterday. So, you know, we can recognize each other. But it's not really the same. The whole thing about bad hair days, you know, your hair is never really, unless it's really shaved off exactly the same day to day, which is a source of distress sometimes and happiness others. Little things, but, but big. A friend, I was just talking to a friend yesterday who I haven't seen for a few years. And I used to come here and sit a lot, but he's been home. And he said, well, but I see your pictures and you look just the same. And I said, yeah. It's the same picture for 10 years. <laughs> of course I look just the same. <laughs> but he somehow didn't want to let that in. He goes, oh, no, it's a new thing that you're doing. I said, yeah, new thing, same picture. <laughs> but that's what we like to think. Oh, yeah, you look just as young as ever. Uh, afraid not. <laughs> so, so never mind the big things, the momentariness of a Nietzsche. This constant, subtle shifting is something that first is, is difficult to perceive, but it's also masked by um, lack of continuity in our awareness. There's actually a word for this in Pali, santati. Mahasi Sayadaw talks about it. He describes santati as, you mistake a series of successive phenomena for a single phenomenon. For example, you're seeing or hearing something repeatedly, moment after moment after moment, say, I'm looking at that chair, and it seems like it's staying steady, that I'm seeing it over a prolonged period, and so I think the thing I'm currently seeing is the same thing I saw before. 
You get what I mean? So I think that chair is the same. It's also positing that this I, this consciousness, this body is the same. And it's all just going along the same until I turn my head. You know? Then I'm seeing something different. But without actually looking carefully, I'm still positing that this I and this consciousness and this body are the same. Right? So Santati, this is, it causes you to... The continuity of phenomena and also the fast continuity of consciousness and of the sense door contact, it causes us to think that the thing we're seeing, that we're currently seeing, is the same thing we were seeing a second ago. It's a little disorienting to think that might not be true, isn't it? You know, I mean, how, how can we function if this isn't the same as it was before? Ever, the whole world's going to fall apart. How are we going to function? You know, the mind goes off into that trip. And this is what's so great, because the perception of anicca really frees our heart and mind from clinging. It's not going to the land of anicca from the land of permanence is what frees our heart and mind from clinging. It's already anicca. It's already that way. So if fear comes up just kind of spontaneously around, oh, no, how can that be? Okay, we just notice the fear. That's fine. But if you really let yourself get into the thinking about how can we function if everything's changing and all of that, notice that is a complete waste of time. (laughs) And just if it's happening, fine, blah, 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 but don't give it any energy. It's already that way. The same is with no self. It's not like you have a self and you're going to get rid of it and then you won't know who you are. It's already that way. The whole, you know, the whole, I've said this before, but it just, it really helps me. The whole nature of insight is not about creating a different reality. It's about just that little shift of perception that recognizes what's already here in a different way. That's all. That's all it is. You always use this one of that magic eye that's just uh, just uh, geometrical forms with no particular thing you can recognize. And if you look at it, steady but soft, right? You can't look for something. Steady, soft gaze, not trying, relax, and just stay there. And all of a sudden, a 3D particular image pops out. Now, do you think that it wasn't there and then something happened and all of a sudden this 3D image popped out? Or was maybe it was always there, right? We just, that little shift of perception. Both ways of perceiving can be there. You know, they both are there. So in terms of impermanence, the perception of impermanence, even in a moment when we really are experiencing that constant rise and passing, rising and passing, the constant change of things, there might be fear in a moment, but just noticing that come and go too. That moment of experiencing in that way really frees in that moment something. Something that we never really knew we know. And even though that perception doesn't stay. And that's probably how we function in the world. We go back to being able to recognize you know, each other. And the room is still the same and we know what objects are and the table doesn't move, you know generally. We're perceiving permanence, but it's different to have a perception that's a conventional reality and useful, and we know that's what it is, and we're using it. 
That's different from once we know it's in constant change, but we can use the conventional reality. That's great. But when we don't know there's another reality, then the way we relate to the conventional perception of permanence is what leads us to clinging, to holding on, to fear, to basically relating in a way that isn't in sync with how things are. Square peg in the round hole, you know. That, that, remember that? Well, the two of you who are still here then. Remember, <laughs> I keep thinking you've all been here for ages, but it all keeps changing. The, descri- the definition of dukkha as um, like uh, the, the axle rod fitting into the hole of the wheel and it doesn't really fit. So it's always not quite fitting, bad fit, not quite. It's a great description of dukkha. Part of that is we're not perceiving impermanence, so we're always like relating to this has got to stay, this has got to stay, you know, or this is going to stay and I want it to go, oh my God, instead of opening to the mystery, to the wonder. So that second aspect that I wanted to talk about is that for me, and this is the way I experience it, maybe it's not so for you, but the tendency, of course, to cling to what is familiar or beautiful, what I love, or just like just comfortable, and the, the sadness, the poignancy, the sense of loss that is a part of life for we unenlightened human beings on this earth. No way, no way to not experience loss, to not experience change. And for most of us, I fear that the sadness that can come, poignancy or all the way to grief, it's part of the play of being human in this world. You know, just like joy is, just like compassion and love are, just like anger are. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying we should feel grief or sadness, but I'm saying we don't need to be afraid of it or pull back from it or block the openness of our mind and heart, our consciousness to recognize change out of a kind of instinctive fear of the sadness. I mean, clinging clinging is so interesting, you know. It's so kind of poignant, because in some ways it's our unconscious strategy for happiness, right? If I hold on to this, this person, this relationship, this life situation, this, this finally perfect moment of mindfulness after all these months, this whatever, clinging is the natural response. It's going to make me happy, clinging to me. And of course, as we know on this level, clinging is the very thing that actually blocks the ease, the happiness, the peace. But it's a kind of like, a, uh, I experienced it as, a, as the kind of in, intuitive, intuitive but unfortunately wrong, response to the unreliability of life, the shakiness, the sense of when I was talking before, everything's in constant change. My, my thinking mind, even when I say it, doesn't like that, you know, I get a little kind of feeling here. It's like everything's constantly shifting. No, I need something. Like being in an earthquake. Years ago, when I was teaching at Yucca Valley, we had an earthquake. 
in the middle of the Dharma talk, and then actually I was talking, and everything was shh, and I'd never been in an earthquake, and it wasn't a bad one. Oh, this is kind of cool. But then later we had a much bigger one, and I was outside, and, you know, it, it, it was, because I was outside and, and no one was hurt, you know, just the grounds going and everything shaking. And then for the next three days, every five or ten minutes, there was an aftershock, which some of them are quite big. So then it stopped being so cool, because every few minutes everything starts shaking, and you're, you know, you're lying in bed, or you're sitting and, you know, or you're eating or whatever, and the radio kept saying, you know, 35% chance of the big one. You know, however, you, let's make everything sound as bad as it could be. So you sit there, everything starts rolling. You think, is this the big one? Do I have to run outside and wait it out a little bit more? And you just couldn't settle. It was almost physical. The body just couldn't settle. I mean, and I really go, wow, you can't rely on this earth to be solid. The earth isn't solid. You can't rely on anything never to change, to always be there. And it felt actually biological after a couple of days. It wasn't that my mind was so afraid. It was just like the adrenaline and the unsettled quality in the body. But I got that sense of how I didn't like it. I wanted to think there could be some steady, solid thing, and I don't have to think about it, and I don't have to let in impermanence. I'm not giving this example as that's how the wisdom of impermanence, the the perception of impermanence frees us. That's an example of how resistance to impermanence causes this little bit of angst, this, you know, this dukkha, this square peg in the round hole. It's just, uh, 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 shouldn't be like this. I want to settle instead of just rolling with it. Yeah, it was unpleasant. Half of the time things are unpleasant. That's how it is anyway. Half of the time, they're not. So I get a sense, you know, this, this clinging is kind of like the, the response, the reaction to that. And it's so poignant because it just doesn't work. Galway Canal is just a little snippet of a long poem from him. You cry, waking from a nightmare. When I sleepwalk into your room and pick you up, and hold you up in the moonlight, you cling to me hard, as if clinging could save us. I think you think I will never die. I think I exude to you the permanence of smoke or stars, even as my broken arms heal themselves around you. I have heard you tell the sun, don't go down, I have stood by as you told the flower, don't grow old, don't die, little Maud. Yet perhaps this is the reason you cry, this the nightmare you wake crying from, being forever in the pre-trembling of a house that falls. I like that line, as if clinging could save us. It's really so poignant. But we can open to the poignancy. When we open to that, it's so touching. It opens us into beauty, like he says, while my broken arms heal themselves around you. When we don't fight it, it opens us into the mystery and the wonder of the world. 
The Buddha said, the search for a resting place is burning. Not to need one is cool and peaceful. The search for a resting place is burning. Not to need one is cool and peaceful. So I like to think of as this cellular anicca, the cellular perception, just letting it in. It really leads us into a deep connection and acceptance of just what's happening now. It allows us to recognize, to be fully present and engaged in just what's happening now. Not holding to what was two seconds ago, ten years ago. Not busily constructing what could happen for bad or good in the future, some kind of resting place. Not to need one is cool and peaceful, even just for a moment. And yet it's just really natural to resist and to feel real sadness at change and loss. Even in the suttas, you know, there's plenty of it. The most famous example, of course, is Ananda, the Buddha's longtime um, attendant for 25 years. So I'm sure you know the story of when the Buddha told Ananda that he was going to die within three months. And then Ananda kind of disappears. And the Buddha is sitting there in his assembly. And of course, he knows, he can know if he turns his mind to anyone what's going on in their mind. So he turns, oh, let me get it right. He turns to the other monks and he goes, um, where is Ananda, O oh, monks? And Ananda had gone into his lodging. And it's so lovely, it actually gives the photo. He stood lamenting, leaning on the doorpost. So he's leaning against his doorpost and crying, you know. Alas, the teacher is passing away who is so compassionate to me. It's really touching. Ananda comes across, of course, as very human, very kind, very accessible. He kind of, almost like he embodies what we could relate to, you know, if we were partially enlightened like he is. But still, we can really relate to that. And so the Buddha calls him, and he says... uh, Enough, Ananda. Now, he's saying this kindly, not you stupid jerk. He's saying it kindly. (laughs) Enough, Ananda. Do not weep and wail. Have I not already told you (laughs) that all things that are pleasant and delightful are changeable, subject to separation and becoming other? So how could it be, Ananda, since whatever is born, become, compounded, is subject to decay, How could it be that it should not pass away? It's just impossible. So he's, you know, he's not saying don't care, but just pointing to that a great deal of our lamenting, our struggle, is really resisting what's already happening. Oh. But then there's the feeling of loss can still be there without all the grief, without all the aversion. There's another place, and I don't have it, I may misquote it a little, but it's the right drift, where the Buddha says, after his two chief disciples, Sariputta and Moggallana, they both died before the Buddha died. And there's a place where he's looking at in the assembly and saying, it's as if this assembly is empty for me. Empty. He meant empty because it's empty of Sariputta. 
empty of Mogalana. They're nowhere to be seen. So, okay, he's not beating his head against the doorpost and weeping and wailing. And of course, things come together, they go apart. The end of every meeting is parting. But he's noticing they're gone. He's noticing the loss. So for me, I try to let the sadness, the sense of resistance, be a wake-up call rather than something to, to resist or think it's bad or wrong, to just look and see, oh, what's going on now? What's being resistance? What's being resisted? And I find when I open into, oh, yeah, this is changing. Really, by the time I'm saying this is changing, it probably already changed three days ago, but, oh, yeah, this is changing. The letting, the, the, the holding on, let's go. And then by itself, it's not like I say, now I will open into being more connected. It just happens by itself. The response is more flexible, more appropriate. The story of a friend of ours, a friend of mine who, who sat, used to come and sit at Yucca Valley for many years, an older man uh, who uh, lives in, he's a farmer in the middle of the country, doesn't know anyone else where he is that meditates. And he would always come every year, and he, you know, one of these people would say, oh, I really can't do it right. I don't know what I'm doing. But really dedicated, devoted. Sometimes he'd call up and say he would, when he was driving on his tractor, he'd be contemplating the Four Noble Truths or looking, you know, really quite lovely. But one of the, you know, how you think, I can't meditate, I can't concentrate, you know, so it's for nothing. It's... Anyway, he told us he had, um, a few years ago, had to have an open heart surgery where they replaced a valve. And the, the surgery went okay, but then he was in the intensive care that you know that night or the next day. And as he said, he's very funny, hooked up with a tube to every orifice and, and conscious. And then all of a sudden, everything started beeping and going wild, which isn't good. You know, if you're in intensive care in these machines and they start beeping, it's not a good sign. And, and he was lying there going, oh, my God, you know, I'm dying. Something's going wrong. This, and he was really present, he said. He said, this might be my last breath. And he started panicking, and then the thought just came out, of if this is my last, last breath, let me really be here for it. And he just completely surrendered into that breath and then went unconscious. Obviously, it wasn't his last breath. And he said, you know, later he woke up and he freaked out and all of that. But that kind of, we never know. You know, we don't know what seeds we're planting. We don't know when it's really our attention is called, the focus has to be there, boom, here we are. And impermanence presents itself, and the response is appropriate. It's flexible. It's connected. It's nothing we can plan, but we can trust, actually, that that's how it shows up. So... Continuity of awareness, continuity of mindfulness, and I don't mean for two seconds, I mean that, you know, that willingness we have. Of course we space out, but the willingness to really keep coming back into moment-to-moment awareness all day, every day. It's that continuity that actually reveals the change on these quick and subtle levels. Because when we're just noticing moment-to-moment what's happening... And again, it is, it's mindfulness that isn't a conceptual, you know, what we think we're seeing or what we want to see or what we wish it was or what we think it is, but just what's happening now, 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 that bare attention. That starts to reveal, 
You don't even have to think about it. Just keep noticing moment to moment. It reveals impermanence. It reveals the change. You're sitting, you're walking, you're just noticing sensations in your body. For a while, the conceptual overlay might be my back is always hurting or I always have this knot in my neck, you know. But when you're moment to moment looking, it's rarely the same for two seconds together. Nothing's always. Nothing's always. And I can't say how many times people come into interviews, and I do it myself. It's always like this. I always feel that. This is here all the time. And I'll go, frequently, or often. And the person will go, yeah, frequently, often. Yeah, 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 you know. But inside, you know, yeah, it's always here. Don't tell me. <laughs> but when we really look, notice when something's here, we may not see everything end. We're not always going to see things end. Something else starts, and we're involved in the other thing. But notice when you're saying, well, I always feel this aversion. Right now I don't feel it, but it's always under there. No, notice. Right now it isn't here. It's really gone. Notice the goneness of things as well as their presence. A friend of ours, a friend of mine was describing this, the whole sense of Sakaya Ditti personality view. Sakaya, uh, Sayada Ulakana, Defined Sakaya is just the flow of Nama Rupa, the, you know, the six sense doors contact going on, on and on and on and on. Sakaya Ditti, Ditti is view, is in a moment when any of that six sense door experience, the body and the mind, is clung to in that moment, identified within that moment as me or mine, that's a sense of identity view, Sakaya Ditti. In the bigger picture, the way Ajahn Sumedho uses the term Sakaya Ditti is like our personality view, our view, our sense of our personality, our familiar, comfortable, even if you hate it, it's comfortable, or what we think our personality is. And it's a, an effect of not seeing impermanence. We have certain habits that come up a lot, Different ones of us may have different, you know, permutations of the habits, but nothing's always there. Steady awareness shows this. I'm leading up to this sort of a friend of mine who was telling me at a retreat, she was cooking at this retreat, and she is, considers herself a very aversive type person. And as she was saying to me, I've known her a long time, everyone else also says, yes, you're a very aversive type person. So... She is someone who, at times, can manifest aversion once in a while. But she said, so she noticed that was her Sakaya Ditti, her personality view. Aversive type, I manifest aversion, that's the kind of person I am. And so, but she was sitting for a couple of days, and she really, during this long retreat, and she just brought in steady continuity of, of mindfulness, of sati, just to notice without prior conception, the thoughts, the moods, what was coming up in her mind over and over. And she said, as she looked steady, she said, yeah, aversion would come up, but also there were many kind, generous moments, many thoughts of compassion, many generous actions, a lot of just, you know, normal, boring stuff, some uh, desire, the whole range. She said maybe 10% of the thoughts and moods were aversive. So when you really look, you know, you see that the, 
the overview, the concept tends to cling to certain ones, string them together in the mind and say, I'm aversive, that's what's always going on. The steadiness of mindfulness, if we're really committed to just noticing what's happening now, now we space out, we're committed to notice again. You don't have to get all let me see impermanence. That's how it is. Just be willing to show up for what is without any preconception. The perception of impermanence is going to show up. (laughs) There's no way for it not to. And that's the other thing I was saying, just notice, notice the goneness of things, of moods, of thoughts. And I'm, a lot of people have said this to me in the last couple of months. They'll be talking about some mood or some habit of mind, and they'll say, well, no, it was there a lot, and then it was gone away, but it was just underground. I didn't notice it, but it was still there. Notice when your mind makes that assumption. I didn't notice something, but it was still there. How do you know that? I mean, real looking at what do we really know, not our assumptions. And our assumptions are so familiar, we don't even notice we're making these assumptions a lot of the time. Again, familiar assumptions are another place we sometimes try to land for reliability, for comfort, for ease. I may have a rotten personality, but at least I'm familiar with it and I can rely on it. You know? My friend, she could rely on herself to be aversive. I know how she felt, a little disoriented to find she had a lot of kind and loving thoughts. You know, wait, that's not me. I know after I did a long metta retreat and I came out of it, and not that I was spewing metta everywhere, that would have been nice. I was just being <laughs> me, but... I have an aversive tendency, which means not anger, but just I'll notice what's wrong with things. The mind will go to the unpleasant first and go, well, that could be better. And, this. and my mind would start doing that. And then completely spontaneously, the next moment, the consciousness would notice something pleasant, something beautiful about a person or a situation. Oh, but yeah, but there's this thing. And the first couple times, I would go, who said that? Where did that come from? Who is that? You know, that doesn't fit my image. So we let the image go. Ajahn Chah offers the practice when we're kind of assuming permanence. Notice when we're also assuming permanence. He offers the practice of just reminding yourself as you go through the day, in any situation, this too is uncertain. It could be a little ruffling at times, but just reminding with anything, this too is uncertain. Not to scare us, and it opens us into actually the beauty of connectedness, of appreciation. When the Buddha says the fact that something's impermanent means that it's inherently unsatisfying, unreliable, it doesn't mean we can't appreciate What's beautiful doesn't mean we don't love or care. It just means we don't look to that experience, that person, that sensation, that mood, to give us something it can't give, which is any kind of permanence, which is any reliability in this world. But that doesn't make it bad or worthless. It doesn't mean we'd be afraid of love or beauty of life, it actually, in my experience, allows for much more appreciation of life, much more love, much more presence. It's kind of 
Krishnamurti's phrase, freedom from the known. It's really like that. Our whole practice, mindfulness, is a moment-to-moment opening into the unknown. We never really know what's going to arise in the next moment. Never. We assume, and, you know, a lot of times the assumptions are more or less accurate, which is really too bad in a way, because that's what, what keeps us assuming. This is uncertain. And just in the last two days, I was told two stories, you know, the shocking kind, right? One friend was telling me about her her stepmother who uh, just woke up, an older woman, woke up one morning with her legs kind of numb and within six hours was completely paralyzed by some kind of virus, some weird, weirded out virus that they didn't know what it was. This was years ago. She's fought back. She can walk, you know, and for a while with crutches and stuff, but she's never really gotten back to normal. Completely who knows? And someone else, just, um, other friend I was talking, told me a similar story about someone, you know, just had a stroke like that overnight. You're fine and boom, paralyzed. Who knows? Now, if we go around scared to death of that, that's, that's not perception of impermanence. That's fear. But when we, when we just open into that wow, who knows? It makes me just here, really alive. I can appreciate the poignancy, actually, has a kind of a touching sense, that, that harbinger of change. I don't know how it is for you, but when I see the geese, when I hear and see the geese flying over in the fall, somehow it really just saw, saw a flock today. It touches something really quite deep. It's, it's beautiful. It's kind of sad. It's just kind of this, this sense of real connectedness and who knows, who knows. And I feel so alive in that moment. I'm not looking forward or back. I'm just really here. Freedom from the known. It allows us to really open past the clinging, past the assumptions, past the dukkha, to just fall into that experience of the heart and mind of non-clinging, the Buddha's description of, you know, the supreme state of sublime peace, liberation through non-clinging, the coolness of not needing to find something to take refuge in. I just want to end with this poem from Billy Collins because it gives me that feeling. He calls it aimless love. This morning... As I walked along the lake shore, I fell in love with a wren. And later in the day with a mouse, the cat had dropped under the dining room table. In the shadows of an autumn evening, I fell for a seamstress still at her machine in the tailor's window. And later for a bowl of broth, steam rising like smoke from a naval battle. This is the best kind of love, I thought without recompense, without gifts or unkind words, without suspicion or silence on the telephone. The love of the chestnut, the jazz cap and one hand on the wheel, no lust, no slam of the door, the love of the miniature orange tree, the clean white shirt, the hot evening shower, the highway that cuts across Florida, No waiting, no huffiness or rancor, 
just a twinge every now and then for the wren, who had built her nest on a low branch overhanging the water, and for the dead mouse, still dressed in its light brown suit. But my heart is always propped up in a field on its tripod, ready for the next arrow. After I carried the mouse by the tail to a pile of leaves in the woods, I found myself standing at the bathroom sink, gazing down affectionately at the soap, so patient and soluble, so at home in his pale green soap dish. I could feel myself falling again as I felt it turning in my wet hands and caught the scent of lavender and stone. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. 